0: Welcome to the Future Learning Design Podcast.
1: This is really the message, that everybody that has been hoping or waiting for change, transformation, complete revamp, whatever you want to call it, it's happening now. And that is basically this call to action. It's very important. It's a call to action. It's not a call to continue talking.
0: Welcome back to the podcast. Wow, there is such a buzz around these guys at the moment. With their ReLearn conference coming up on November the 9th, it was a huge pleasure to speak with Christopher Pomerening and Stephen Harris of LearnLife. Christopher Pomeranning is the founder and chief empowerment officer at LearnLife. He has evolved from an internet entrepreneur and venture capitalist into a high impact entrepreneur on a mission to change education positively worldwide. Christopher started his professional career in Spain in 1998 when he co-founded Auto Scout 24. Then in 2002, founded the venture capital company Active Venture Partners. Since then, he has founded 10 companies and organizations and invested in more than 30 startups. But now since 2017, he's working on his once in a lifetime adventure to change the world's learning landscape. Stephen Harris is the Chief Learning Officer at Learn Life. After 40 years working as an innovative educator within existing systems, both government and independent, Stephen has now chosen to work outside but alongside traditional education. For almost 20 years, Stephen was the principal of Northern Beaches Christian School, and it was here that he founded the Sydney Centre for Innovation in Learning. Stephen also works with collaborators in Rwanda, where he's setting up the Learn Life Hub in Kigali. Chris, how are you All doing? All right, I'm super. Hi, Stephen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Great. I'd love to start with the vision of Learn Life, which is just a phenomenal statement, and I'd love to just read it before I come to you about where this has come from. But what you're saying is that by 2030, we aim to empower 100 million learners, 5 million educators, 100,000 schools and governments of 196 countries through a new learner-centered paradigm. Now, that's a hell of a statement. It's just awesome. So I would love to hear a bit more about what gives you the purpose yourself in terms of that vision, but and also maybe a bit of a background of how has that arisen?
1: Thank you, Tim, first of all, for your kind invitation. And I think, you know, it's it's very simple. That's when my wife and I, we turned parents. That's when this whole purpose bubbled up. So we have now three children. Luca is nine, Jona seven, and little Mila is turning two next month. And basically had our first two boys after a couple of years. The first question arises, what kind of kindergarten would there be? And we already, I mean, being from Germany, living in Spain, you know, based in Catalonia. I mean, there were already three systems that we were seeing. And they were profoundly different. So much difference between kindergartens in Germany, multi-age groups versus Uh, boxed in aged already learning, you know, numeracy and reading and writing at the age of four years uh, in the Spanish system. So, So what's all this about? And then we start to research and look into education systems. And that was in 2015. And we basically just got very frustrated and sad about the state of the situation. And we were on a trip in Asia. And I just thought to myself, my whole life, I dedicate to entrepreneurship and building up projects and and organizations with wonderful missions, some of them changing positively entire industries. And here I am now a father. And I just wondered, what will my kids tell me in 10 years saying, well, you know, you are moving so many things and and what have you done actually to help us or to help these children to experience a different form of learning? And that was, I think the initial purpose going then much deeper into this whole point. Well, you look right now, we have 1.5 billion children in schools around the world. And I think what we have to realize everybody, not only in the education field, But everybody, every parent, every person in this world is that right now we are building the biggest dead end for these 1.6 billion kids because standardizing them for the next 10 years, they will come out out of any education system around the world and go into a world where every machine, every artificial intelligence will be more powerful in optimizing and standardizing what they have been learning. So, So if they don't get into a world where their creativity, their self-directed learning is in the center point. They won't understand this world anymore. So we have COVID now, then climate change is right above that. But the biggest humanitarian problem is created by us. So I think that's the biggest purpose for us.
0: Let's do something about it. Very nice. Yeah, And who was involved in that in the early stages?
1: Yeah. So the the early stages, I mean, was about research and basically understanding what is happening around the world. What are yeah. these amazing innovative schools that already exist? And, you know, we started to research, to analyze them. We, we started to travel, you know, together with some friends. One of the first very interesting moments was to get to know Alfredo Hernando, a Spanish innovator in, in the learning and education field who wrote a book about the 50 innovative schools around the world. So we basically teamed up and exchanged a lot of the research. And then many of my supporters and friends out of the education world were always pointing towards Australia, to Sydney. That was to Stephen and to what he has been building up with the innovative school settings that he was dealing with. And then I think it was 2016 that we actually physically met for the first time in Barcelona. And yeah, that was a a wonderful first, very impressive meeting where we shared our visions and and they were so aligned. And yeah.
0: Yeah, brilliant. I wanted to ask you a bit about, because that's such an incredible opportunity to travel the world and see all these different examples of amazing innovative education in different settings. I mean, that's a huge part of building the vision is seeing the reality of things happening in practice. From what I've seen, you went, literally everywhere to find these places. So what stands out particularly for you in terms of some profound moments of of insight or just incredible things that you saw there?
1: For me, I mean, I I will pass over to Stephen because he, he traveled the world and schools much more even than I did. But I can only say this, The one thing that struck me in all this gathering of data and best practices was that by looking through a bit more of a hundred innovative schools around the world, by now 27 different learning methodologies are already used in all kinds of different Mm. settings. And so here we are 150 years in a standardized system. Everything is about cognitive learning. But there we are on the other side, completely fragmented. Nobody knows about it and so on. There are 27 different methodologies that any learner could actually learn on. So if we would just spend a bit of effort to understand each learner, we could actually create a world of learning methodologies that are perfectly connected to each learner individually. And for me, that was basically where I just knew okay, we we are up to something very important and Mm. it's not that difficult to understand what is basically an old paradigm towards a new paradigm. Mm.
2: Yeah, I had the opportunity as a school leader to use, uh, I guess, a very supportive board edict to say to me that they were very happy for me to travel around the world and to find what I thought were the best practices. Um, And they gave me one stipulation at the time and that was that I should always not travel alone. So I guess having the freedom to observe and to evaluate and then ultimately to vision. Now that, that was very interesting because it led me down multiple paths simultaneously. Um, I, I did finish up my PhD thesis is on that very topic, the power of collective envisioning to create sustained change in education. And I, I guess I'm a big believer But seeing a whole range of different models of school, whether they're positive or or negative, it's the conversations around that that actually help sharpen the vision going through. And so that during that journey, it was everything from seeing online schools from the middle 2000s. It's quite interesting to find people now who can't believe that there were fully online schools from 2005, 2006, but they were through to you know schools that were nature-based learning, play-based learning, going up to Finland, different places. And that journey helped sharpen my understanding of to a degree, it's just a question about Doing things rather than thinking about them, and that really came to a fore for me in Iceland when I met um, the guy who worked in the Ministry of Education and a professor of, of IT there. And I, there was a really big long Icelandic word which I could, of course, not read. And I said, "What does it mean?" And the guy smiled and said, "Do then think," and then that became my nice. motto. Because I think I recognize that in education, one of the things that stops innovation is that people want, I mean, they they intuitively know what they should be doing. And just as Christopher mentioned with the methodologies, they know that there's a whole range of different things that they could be doing. But they resort back to the traditional or the need to prototype or do something cautiously. And education is not like that. You just have to run with the, the intuition. You know the theory and the research and say, we make it work. And I guess to a degree, that's what has happened with LearnLife is that that combination of knowing best practice around the world, aggregating that background knowledge of neuroscience. And I guess to a degree, that's how LearnLife in Barcelona has started, that it's, it's a project where the team that have come together have been confident to enact their beliefs.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, it's so interesting what you're saying about the fragmentation, because so many of these ideas have been around, you know, your 27 methodology, they've been around for so many years, right? And some passionate advocates here and there, but there's so much fragmentation. And, and actually, one of the things I like is you talk about yourself being an aggregator or a connector, trying to bring things together. Maybe you could say a little bit about that. Obviously, you've got the hub there in Barcelona. And then, but how are you kind of envisioning bringing other people into that in terms of connecting and aggregating to to scale the concepts?
1: So in my experience, coming from a more online internet kind of world, which, you know, my last 20 years was all about, I learned something very interesting, again, together with my wife, because she was building up in 2010, a digital platform to help entrepreneurs to connect with all the different stakeholders around the ecosystem of entrepreneurship. So be it, you know, advisors or investors or co-founders or whatever. And the interesting bit is that that project had its difficulty actually together with a group of founders in Barcelona, we created an association and created a physical hub for entrepreneurship. Uh, And that was about five years ago. And then funnily enough, just having a pure building in the middle of Barcelona, the entire ecosystem of entrepreneurship, all the big corporates, investors, the government, whoever you have suddenly came together and said, okay, here it is. Here is the center point, the, the melting pot, the go-to place for entrepreneurship in a, in a city. And, and that was very interesting just as an understanding mm. of, of strategy because suddenly everybody's talking about ed tech and you know, it's going to be the disruptor of you know the future of school and so on and so on. And we just don't believe that that's the first most important thing. We, we actually know that to entirely change positively education, you need a physical statement, a, a showroom, a show place of the future of learning. Mm-hmm. And that needs to be very physical. So mm-hmm. that's why the learning innovation hubs came into play as a starting point and it's basically the embodiment of connecting the regional or local ecosystem of around learning innovations and that's basically how we see learn life to be this supporter aggregator obviously of best practices from around the world mm-hmm. and then connector on a very local or regional or national basis. And maybe that's something interesting because we're speaking now with you. I mean, you're in France, in Bordeaux, but you are like this typical person you know, that is already a, a leader, a champion within your own ecosystem mm-hmm. for learning innovation. Yeah. And we are just actually in these days, we are launching with several people around the world. Before a hub actually gets established, you normally already start to create the ecosystem in a preparation form. So what we came up with is that there are people which we called the learning ecosystem architects and designers. Mm. So we are right now building a network of uh, leads around the world that mm. are the champions to actually you know, make change happen. And hopefully eventually will be promoting or founding or co-founding learning innovation hubs in their regions. Yeah, so this yeah. is an open invitation yeah. to you to become a lead for France, for Bordeaux, yeah. or for every, any region that you like.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. Because that's such an important part, isn't it? Preparing the, the cultural context and the ecosystem and designing it in a really intentional way. So I love that idea. But then also, ultimately, I mean, with all this online learning with corona for me fundamentally education is a human endeavor right like it's it's about connecting and so much of that comes in a in a physical space whatever that space is outside inside wherever but you know that interaction is where some of the, the sparks happen so just to then shift onto your paradigm cuz again that's just a phenomenal piece of work you know i've been spending lots of time going through all of the work that's been done there i mean it's just a, a really comprehensive overview of the preparation as you're talking about of an ecosystem and then the establishment and then the the consolidation of a learning concept and space and maybe you could just Stephen just take us through a little bit about the actual learning paradigm itself and you know what was your intention in the creation of that and how do you imagine that people will engage with that
2: yeah I mean the first thing is that behind the paradigm is the belief that the current education systems of the world have profoundly failed. You know, that if you don't actually deeply understand that and recognize that, you know, the shelf life has passed you know, I, I watch places where they tinker at the edges and they might improve something temporarily, but it's, there is a there is a fundamental failure in the current education system so the paradigm was i guess intended to help people move from that perspective of despair yes. <laughs> into something fairly rapidly into something that provided them with a hopeful journey and a way through it and and the answers have always been there it's just that you know you don't improve the learning opportunities for kids by putting more exams in i mean regrettably spain's answer to learning is to give more homework and they have the highest level of homework in europe going mm. through i mean that's that's not going to help a child become a learner Different governments try you know, different strategies and, and, and national testing, standardized testing, all of those things have been the hallmark of the last 30 years where people have tried to improve something and they've never been able to define that other than its marks or grades, which are always so subjective when it comes down to it. I mean, if there's anything about the pandemic this year, is it has exposed how subjective Grading and marking is so. The paradigm itself, I guess, comes out of the notion that there is a way through it. And for for us, it starts with the culture, the purpose, the vision, the valueism. And so, as as I thought through, how do you encourage people to implement a change? They've got to spend the time on that first sort of segment of what we've written down. But we're not saying that everyone actually has to follow it like a textbook, going mm-hmm. through it all. But hopefully, as they read through they might become aware of areas that they had not paid sufficient attention to. Because I, I can remember back at my previous school in Sydney, we were trying to shape the culture of learning so it became a, a more overt culture that you could see visibly around the place. And as I, as I thought through... You know, the kids were coming into school every day and they had seen advertisements already for a whole myriad of things in their head. They had these cultures of, you know, surfing, soccer, sex, whatever else had been in their experience in the previous 24 hours. We didn't want to say that was wrong, but we wanted a learning culture to be stronger. And so you've got to shape it. You've got to actually grow it. And I think there's a lot of people who try to do something new and different but they haven't addressed that both the individual culture and also the collective culture. So that's a key part to implementing the paradigm is the preparation phase beforehand. And and then you've got the additional parts of getting the workforce able to to cope in different ways.
0: Yeah, there's something interesting there in what you said about not using it as a textbook, right? Because one of the ironies, I guess, and I had the same conversation with Peter Mott recently about accreditation protocol, is the idea of trying to shift and change something, but then replace it with something which is a, a recipe of the next standardized model, right? So I guess, are you intending that the paradigm will be very personalizable to context and people can engage with the bits that resonate with them and the bits that seem to apply in their context in a much more philosophically aligned way.
2: Yeah, totally. I view the world from a completely um, random perspective as Christopher knows very well and can get sidetracked immediately. So I I will never follow a textbook straight through if I'm following a recipe. Yeah, and start off with pumpkin soup, it will finish up being radish or something else completely different. So for me, it's not about following a set of plans. It's exactly as you've said, it's actually looking for prompts for your own thinking to see what's our deficit, what do we need to focus on? I I guess one of the things that um, is massive around the world is that the entire teaching workforce, even with the universities that talk about collaborative thinking, critical thinking and and a whole range like that, they still will have a supervisor in the classroom with one teacher and say can you manage the class or not you know that that when it comes down to it that's what they're doing and until we collectively develop workforce capabilities to be working collaboratively and be thinking quite differently about how learning works we're not going to make those changes and so therefore we have to enable people to be creative in their own responses So the paradigm is all about that. It's about unleashing people's, I guess, inner intuition and creativity to bring learning alive. I mean, you were talking beforehand about online learning and the remote learning from the pandemic and missing the connections. I mean, one of the questions I've been talking about today with a group from both New Zealand and Australia, two different conversations I've had was, okay. I want to start thinking about remote learning, not from the deficit of saying, will our kids get good marks or good grades, Because that that constrains the entire process. You've got to start off by saying, how do we maximize connections in an online remote community? You've you've got to start with that connection point and then move to learning. Mm. Otherwise, you'll always finish up going back to a traditional thinking.
1: Yeah. Yeah, maybe to just add to the whole idea of coming from one boxed in standardized system and building kind of the next one, I think. This is like why we did spend so much time on, on research and, and looking into history, right? Because if you look into the history, we had already amazing projects and, and amazing people building new versions of, of educational learning, right? We can go into the Montessoris, the mm-hmm. Rudolf Steiners and the likes. Um, We looked into what happened in 110 years uh, of existence of these, uh, because I think both of them were coming from 1909 or so in in the creation year. But what happened is they had amazing ideas and concepts, but again, it was a boxed in model, right? So if you want to have a Montessori school, it is a very clear framework and, and structure around it. So we believe that if you look into the numbers of what needs to be changed and looking into just schools, not even taking universities in consideration Mm -hmm. or other uh, learning institutions, we're talking about more than 2 million schools around the world. So we can only provide a open, flexible, plug and play universe of learning innovation elements, which then basically connects to each setting individually. But we never should be doing again a boxed-in system where people say, okay, you have to do this yeah. or you're basically out. This is not how we can empower the entire world, every educator, every school leader, every education leader in this world to actually create a new project for her or himself.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a whole different way of thinking about providing the next network. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, different yeah. approach to maybe
1: just to speak because you mentioned our paradigm. This is very important. Mm. It's not our paradigm. It is the paradigm of everybody. And it's, I think, one of the fundamental design principles is that there's a starting group of people that have basically proposed a certain starting Mm. point for the future of learning, but it is co-created and it will be much more co-created in the future. So right now, these are hundreds of people around the world that are engaging in conversations and discussions in proposing new parts of the element. And this is basically an invitation that this will be probably thousands of people in the future. This is not one person anymore, right? This is not a Christopher paradigm, a Stephen paradigm, Mm. a Tim paradigm or whatever. Mm -hmm. This is 2020 and we are building something for the future. This is built together because no one of us could basically say, how does this paradigm actually beautifully grow in a completely different cultural setting on the other side of the world, right? So, you know, no one of us could say, how would this work in South America or in the middle of Asia? So it needs to be embraced by people around the world and then created from there on.
0: Amazing. Absolutely. It's like the myth of the lone genius that we're still a bit enamored by the idea that one person, one brain can come up with a sufficiently complex solution to fundamentally now complex problems. It's just, it's not going to happen, right? But it takes me on to this, my, my next question I wanted to ask you about an interaction that Christopher and I had on LinkedIn about curriculum. There's an interesting question about the role of curriculum in this new paradigm. And I just, one of the things that Christopher said was that the curriculum implies instruction and therefore is a barrier to self-directed and self-determined learning. So maybe, Christopher, you know, I'd love to get into that a little bit in terms of in this kind of VUCA world. Do we need a curriculum? What What's the role of curriculum? Because obviously we love a good curriculum, right? We like it boxed off and then we can roll it out with pacing guides and all of this very standardized process. So clearly there's an extreme end of standardizing. But, what you know, where do you see the role of some sense of a root map or a, a landscape map as a curriculum for land life.
1: Well I think it's the question that we have to ask ourselves first of all, what does the future bring? Can anybody answer that? Because if there's somebody that can answer how the future will look like, well then you can build the curriculum, right? But I guess we we come to the conclusion that I mean nobody knows how the next 10, 20, 30 years will look like. So what do we think about ourselves that we think that we can be able to build a curriculum Mm. for something that is unknown, which is, you know, a VUCA world. So uh, I think that is a big question that every curriculum designer should ask themselves. Probably your coffee machine has a better mathematical power than you today, right? I mean,
0: there's a statement. yeah? Yeah, I love it. Yeah.
1: Well, that's just a fact, you know, I mean, you can go around your household And probably every dumb machine is a better calculator than yourself. So if you just think about this going forward in the next 10 years, you just have to say, okay, what these these kids or these everybody, I mean, we can include the 7.7 billion people in this world. Everybody needs to learn how to learn. Everybody needs to be a self-directed learner because it's the only way that you find purpose in this world, in this future, whatever this future looks like. So a curriculum will always instruct you to go somewhere where probably your purpose is not really centered in. Yeah. And that's just, I think, more like an open question to everybody in, in this world yeah. to ask themselves whether they can take that responsibility and say, yes, I feel good about this because I know exactly where these kids need to go. And that's my, my challenge. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, what, what would a co-created curriculum look like because what I'm hearing maybe from you is is about individual self-directed learning and perhaps an individual somehow planning and directing their own curriculum let's say if you want to use that terminology or it's just that they're following their path and their journey in terms of learning. I sometimes have a little bit of of an issue with the individualization of that because as we've been talking about the idea of co-creation and collective responsibility and responding to complex challenges. I'd love to explore that idea of, you know, how could we co-create a curriculum in an adaptive way, and in not in a way that's fixed for the next 30 years, because we know what's coming. But I don't know, I'm, I don't have an answer to that. I just, I think there's an open question there as well about how can we make it perhaps more collective as an endeavour rather than just lots of individuals following their own individual passions and, and desires. Stephen, you wanted to comment on that? I
2: think you've got to have a series of frameworks or scaffolds that you're working with mentally as you work with a learner. Now, I, mean, I guess the other thing there is you know, a learner isn't like a standard product where, where they're at the same level of competence in every aspect of their life. You know, if I talked about my competence in English compared to my competence in Spanish or French, it's very, very different. So, so therefore, the scaffolds around my learning for those need to be different. So when we talk about co-creating a curriculum for a learner, then we, we, we need to be, first of all, recognising that they will be at different places depending on their passions, their interests, their past, background, knowledge, and and different things as well. It it was interesting, 12 months ago, we sat down to work out how do we marry concepts, competence, knowledge, cognition, with things like coping with change, the complexity of the world. (laughs) When I wrote that list of about five or six things, I had no idea that within 12 months, the pandemic was going to happen. And yet, you know, what would be different if you, know, you talked about you being in, in Tanzania and I've worked in Rwanda beforehand, you know, you've got, you got whole education systems which have shut down for six months because it was entirely teacher out the front with the curriculum. What would have happened if those same systems had taught resilience, initiative and creativity? from five-year-olds upwards when they were then thrown for six months out into their own devices is that you may have actually had people who were capable of creating their own curriculum in their own little village because they actually had been trained in those even you no know, deeper skills that were necessary so I think the curriculum as you talk about co-creating it going through is the, the learning guide has to have probably an awareness and are there deficit gaps in a child's knowledge? Well, if so, that's fine. I've got no problem with direct instruction if someone wants me to help them learn something. But then I've also got to know them enough to know what's going to spark them. I mean, I'm, I'm working with a, a remote learner at the moment and... I was trying to find what, what was the key to going deeper with him beyond the level of his you know skating and surfing passions and stuff. Well, it turns out it's poverty, you know, and so therefore the, the teacher part of me panics and says, what do I need to give him? The learning guide part of me says, no, I've actually got to get him to now work out where has he seen poverty in his life yeah. and what does he want to do about it? And then we start finding what's useful for him to start learning. So I guess we've got to resist that temptation to give them this curriculum, and say this is what you'll need to be able to understand this issue, as Mm -hmm. opposed to give them the skills to know how do they fish for themselves? You know, how do they find out the relevant information, because it's out of that, that they're likely to then come up with their own challenge Mm -hmm. that will help drive them forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess for me, one of the things is that kind of metacognitive awareness of, of a domain or a landscape. I mean, you don't know what you don't know, whether it's procedural knowledge or, or declarative knowledge or whatever. But there's something around external supports to, to, as you, I mean, the phrase learning guide is a nice one because you have someone with you guiding your learning and who perhaps has a better understanding of the landscape. And understanding both of the
2: landscape, but also the person because yeah. ultimately yeah. it's got to come from that person. And I guess that's where, for, for me, we should be moving beyond personalizing to the personal. We actually want the self-determined learner to be able to know this is actually what I need to learn. You know, and it's not a risky process. It's just a process of patience.
0: So just lastly, then, I've been hearing this phrase quite a lot saying, if not now, then when? And just because obviously there's a lot of reflection going on around COVID and post-COVID and what that means. And you've mentioned it already in terms of this is an opportunity. But what are your current hopes and plans? But also then you've got the the ReLearn Festival coming up the 9th to the 13th of November. That seems to be a big positive coming together to then launch some future developments. So
1: yeah, I I think you know the, the hashtag that we start to use a lot is our time is now, so we don't even question if it's not now and so on. It's no, yeah. it's now. It is now. full stop. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's yeah. now, end of story, uh, and I think this is really the message. It's the message that everybody that has been hoping or waiting for change. Transformation, complete revamp, whatever you want to call it, it's happening now, and that is basically this call to action. It's very important. It's a call to action. It's not a call to continue talking. Everybody has to act now and yeah. not to continue yeah. talk and conversation. That's why relearn the Learning Innovation Festival is our let's say our proposal to the world to find a place during a whole week where learning innovators from around the world come together, they connect, they get to know each other. They see actually that this is not a small movement. These are thousands and thousands of people around the world that are thinking alike and that are the change leaders going forward. And yes, there are some keynote speeches, which is inspirational and It is on purpose, but the essence of the festival are workshops. And these workshops are clearly hands-on action-driven implementation strategies for people in different parts of the world to basically take learning innovations that are proven, Mm. that are evidence-based, and that can be implemented in uh, current settings around the world. So it's really about this. It's very, it's collaborative. I mean, we basically made not only an open call for speakers, which I think uh, actually right just now, uh, it just closed uh, this at 12 o'clock today. And I think we had close to 200 speakers from around the world sending in proposals, which shows the the, just the enormous drive that exists. But it's also, this is not a festival, again, that is just created by us, by our team. It is co-created. I think today we have already... Four, five, six organizations, other event creators, other event founders that are co hosts of this event. Mm. And it shows again the essence. It's not about any more, you know, one organization or the yeah. other doing one thing by themselves. It's about inviting everybody to make something that is so much more meaningful, and much more impactful mm. than any one individually of us. Yeah. It's this transformation from an ego system and an ego society. To a we-go future, right? And and I think these are some of the core principles and our core giveaways for what relearn is all about.
0: Fantastic, Stephen. Did you want to?
2: For, from a from a person who's come through the system and who's now in a different context, if you're not prepared to make the change now, you never will. I think one of the most encouraging things I ever heard was, a an almost retired teacher came to visit the school in Sydney. As part of a collective envisioning process, this person, this lady had three weeks to go before she retired. We got this message sent to us on the Monday morning, it was Friday afternoon, and said that when she got off the bus, she dragged all of the furniture out of her classroom. She said, If I can't change now, I never will. You know, <laughs> so, you know, we have to take the action. You know, again, it's our choice if yeah. we avoid change. And it's as simple as that.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. Pretty- lovely. Well, thank you. I mean, it's definitely a call to action, but it's also good to talk sometimes, but we can't only talk. So, but it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you guys and hear a bit more about land life and and the exciting things that are happening and I would personally absolutely love to continue the conversation and see how we can, you know, keep building it. And I know I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people around the world feeling the same in terms of the excitement about what might come from this
1: this is also let's say a talk and conversation but you know every conversation can end up in an action yeah. and and therefore i think our clear call to action would always be everybody can access the learning paradigm you know uh, at any yeah. moment of time it's there it's a starting point um, everybody in the world can find their tribe in mm-hmm. their region or in their city so going out and see who are the other learning innovators and start to connect in between each other because you know together it's much more powerful uh, to actually start this change third one is people can become uh, what we call learning uh, ecosystem architects and designers for different cities uh, regions and countries so they can reach out if they want to you know be more engaged on that topic And then the last one is every school leader in the world or any entrepreneur in the world, uh, any teacher uh, that wants to create the future of learning can actually create a learning hub in any form or setting outdoors in a very small pop-up version or in a very large newly built complex or whatever. So there are very concrete steps that everybody can take and That would be my thank you to you for the invitation and hope to see you soon.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Stephen. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to continue the dialogues with our guests, with us on our blog or on social media or within your own networks.